It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you enjoy listening to The Edge, support them by subscribing to The Edge on iTunes, Stitcher, and you can listen through the iHeartRadio app. Get busy listening. You're listening to The Edge with Mark Thompson. Hello and welcome. We start with Michael Shore, but we really don't talk politics with Michael for a bulk of it. We talk about something else that was top of mind with Michael, and I think you'll find it interesting. It's a real insight into a part of the culture that I didn't really know much about. And I'll take you through my ride-along in Compton. Some crazy stuff happened. And then we meet a murder cop from Shreveport, Louisiana, who experienced murder in his personal life before he became a murder cop. And then he became a murder cop with a remarkable track record of success. There are a couple of moments in this conversation with him, and I'll be curious to know if you notice them as well, where in talking about how his mother was murdered, for example, and in talking about how murder touched his life personally, he's made peace with it. That'll be the second part of the show. Thanks for being here, as I always do. I'll encourage you, if you're going to buy through Amazon, why not do it through our website? Edge-show.com if you're listening on iTunes or YouTube or Overcast or any of the places where our show is. If you go to our parent website, edge-show.com, there are little Amazon banners there. If you go into an episode, it'll say shop at Amazon or something like that. You click on that, you go through to Amazon, and you see the same Amazon that you normally see, only because you came through our site, we get spun off a little something of whatever you spend. It's a great way to support the show. Also, a few of you have sent little bits of money to us through the PayPal link. It's our virtual tip jar. Thank you for that. Every dollar you get to us, however you get it to us, stays with this podcast. Nobody makes any money. We're not in it for profit. Anyway, thanks for being here as always. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for positive reviews. You know, the reviews are important because they just move our podcast up in the queue. So five-star reviews and even a word or two really matters. If you're listening on iTunes, take a second and do that. All right, my thank yous and my begging is over. Let's get started. This is the edge. The advantage, it means. They look, I just spit on me for no reason. That's horrible. Is there some comfort in uncertainty, do you think? You're a degenerate. Because Australian Shepherds need action. Wow. Yeah. This is the edge. That's a self-loathing term that I use. For oh, got it. Edge-show.com. Edge-show.com. You're You're listening listening to to The Edge. Why does Michael sound louder than me? I don't know. I like it. We're doing a run-through of the first Reasonably Sure, and being that you're going to be the permanent fill-in guy in Reasonably Sure, maybe maybe you could come to the run-through. I'd like that. Will your mic also be louder than mine for that? We hope so. We're trying to rig it for that. There's no excuse for it on your show here, but on my show it's going to be that way. I think that should be my thing. You know, everybody's got a thing. Yeah. Mine should be like the other guy's mic is always a little hotter than mine. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Time for the Fast 15, politics and more. We welcome him back after a week off. Michael Shore, everybody. Thank you. Yeah. It's good to be back. I have to tell you, a lot of traveling, but it's nice to be here. You do a lot of covering of politics across the country. Yeah. 
And there is a lot going on in that world. And that's one of the reasons I like to spend a few minutes at the beginning of every show talking about the political world and also current events. But as we've said, this is politics and more. We start today with something that really doesn't relate to politics. You are a hockey fan. And I know you were very moved by the tragedy involving the high school hockey team that was killed in that horrible accident. It wasn't just, you know, it's... um while they were all of the age of high schoolers or, or young uh, university kids, um, junior hockey in Canada is something uh, of a rite of passage for people going up through hockey there. It's not just high school hockey. You actually move to a different city. You're paid a stipend, sort of like semi-pro, and you billet. You stay with other families in those towns. And so you have these billet families. There's one woman who had three kids who were billeting with her on the on the Humboldt Broncos. Help kids. me on uh, billeting means Billeting then. means that you come from uh, Manitoba or you come from Ontario and you, you're signed to the Humboldt Broncos to play junior hockey and there. You live with a and family. you live with a family there. You and know, that's you, called you, billeting. Yeah, you're, that's your billet family. And okay. it's called billeting. I think it's an old military term, actually. But it's um, it's a big part of hockey in Canada. And, you know, the billet family becomes your de facto family while you're there. And then you'll leave and they'll get another kid. It's it's sort of, you know, like almost like an exchange thing, except you're not exchanging. You know, and so the, the culture of hockey, part of the romance, part of what people like about hockey is that, is that these kids come from small towns, they're skating on frozen ponds on snowy nights and putting, you know, fires and lights up so that they can see the puck, and there are long bus rides, and, and it's a bonding like any other team sport, and it's just to see life change so quickly and so brutally and so in such a devastating way, and the flash of a truck driver going through a stop sign maybe, or maybe just, you know, uh, we, they don't know what the accident was yet, and boom, it's all over for a small, tight-knit community in, in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. You know, it's just a it's a horrible thing. And then it was made even worse yesterday when it turns out that there, there was a family that believed their son had survived and another family that thought their son had passed. And it was a mix-up. And so the the boy who was presumed dead is alive, and vice versa. And it's just it's just terrible. And I was affected by it as a hockey fan, and and just to see the outpouring of support in Canada. Canada is a great country, and you see the, these little communities that are spread so far. That's the second biggest country in the world, spread so far apart, and yet they they come together around hockey. And it's um it just was a just terrible thing. I know the National Hockey League had some kind of remembrance or memorial yeah. prior to a game. I, I'm, I'm right. Yeah. They did one of those where they had the, the Winnipeg Jets and the Chicago Blackhawks. Of course, Winnipeg's in Manitoba, one province over. And they, they wore uh, they wore Broncos on the back of their jerseys instead of their names that game. It was the last game of the season. You know, and th- they do those sorts of things. But they're, they've raised, I think, close to over $4 million on, on GoFundMe and on for, for these kids and their families. And, you know, and it's not just it's not just the families. It's the billet families. It's the kids who's, you know, who there's one boy who won't walk again, who was paralyzed. And it's... It's just it's just a horrendous thing, but yeah, it shows the you know the power of community and everything. I, I'm just affected by it because I I love hockey and and I just you know this is a, a nice outlet where to talk about it. And I appreciate that you bring it up because I think that once the memorial's over at that Blackhawks game, can we kind of move on? Right, of course, and, yeah. And it gets lost right. in those. Um, it's not unlike the in the Parkland 
shootings and all the other, you know, when there's a tremendous loss like this, you think it's going to linger and the ripple effects emotionally right. will sort of be felt by the culture. And unfortunately, the news cycle is it's ravenous. It is. It is ravenous. And listen, this was not about guns. This wasn't about an issue. This was probably going to take, a you know, the province of Saskatchewan is probably going to make some road changes because maybe it was a faulty interchange and who knows. But yeah, it, you know, this community will forever have this and then the world goes on. And you know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that I remember the Russian hockey team went down. And by the way, that was a professional hockey yeah. team. Many of them were NHL players. Right. And, For, and former NHL players. Yeah. And it was it was not that long ago. It was 2011. Right. And they lost everybody. There were 45 guys on there and they lost everybody but two. And it was an airplane. It That's was, right. Yeah. And they and what it revealed in later investigations, it's such a bizarre, weird story, is that these private air carriers that the Russians were using to ferry their various athletes all over the world were completely unregulated. They had horrible maintenance records. Yeah. They, in other words, they're putting their most prized athletes in the most perilous situation repeatedly. Right. Yeah, and, 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 you know, presumably others, too. It's remarkable when you think about it. Teams at every level of sports travel so much and you the, the accidents you can name i mean there have been so few devastating team accidents and this is you know that of course russia was terrible this was as well and we know the high profile ones russia ours of course we know um, yeah ca canadian and and ours but as you go back and look there are these accidents and you realize like it's been two years a uh, plane went down a bolivian charter flight and 42 people were killed these right. are colombian soccer players a and as you go Go back and through time, you can Oklahoma State University women's basketball yeah, team. Evansville wasn't there an Evansville one? I believe in the seventies or eighties, it was a big one. And right, and the University of Evansville. Okay. Entire team and coaching staff, along with members of the press, boosters, plane crew, they were all killed in the crash. It took place shortly after takeoff. So right, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, right. Uh, and then, of course, the famous soccer team that went down in the Andes that inspired that book, Alive. Alive. That yeah. was a that book was unreal. That was unreal. Yeah, it, you know, American aviation accidents are so 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 rare that it's not surprising that nothing happens or it hasn't happened in, in a long time. But even though they're so rare, don't you get nervous when it starts getting bumpy? No, never bumpy. Not never. No, really, never. No, bumpy is just it's it's air. It's it's like a, a pilot once told me. It's like a, you drive on a dirt road. Sometimes for us, that's our dirt road. You know, my girlfriend, who is lovely and very smart, meaning she should be able to understand that which you've just said. Yeah. She literally, first of all, the pilot comes on and he'll go, we're going to experience some turbulence here. And by right. the way, I'm having this conversation. I don't mean to trivialize these deaths or. No, no, it's just the natural, I'm just, it's the a natural move on. This yeah. is a segue, yeah. So I'm always appreciative that the pilot's going to say, hey, you know, folks, it's going to be a little bumpy over Oklahoma. Looks like uh, we've got some strong headwinds. Just want right. to give you a warning. Why don't you do what we do up here in the cockpit a little right, bit? Right. So keep your seatbelts fastened. That and try not to move about the cabin. The right. only place that people move, move about, about in the whole world is the cabin. Uh, just that announcement brings my girlfriend to like this level of like right on the verge of tears. I'm not kidding. Wow. So when there's a little bump, she goes over. She's like so 
frightened. And That's I'm, amazing. It's strange. Yeah. There's nothing safer than flying a commercial aircraft in America. It's why pilots have the lowest insurance rate, you know, the, the uh, premiums that they pay if you if you work for one of the major carriers in America on, on big jets. There's it's just it's remarkable. Look back at when the last time you know, you don't want to jinx anything, and I don't believe in jinxes. But but it's even if something were to happen tomorrow, it's still unbelievably safe to fly in America. There are five hundred thousand people in the air all the time in the world. That's a half million people just flying right now as we speak, at least. Well, once we get those onerous regulations off of those carriers, probably more are going to start dropping out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But then the free market will decide. Of course, of course, that's right. Mark, is everything political to you? Yes, actually, uh, Michael. Sure. Can we quickly spend a moment or two talking about what's happening in the world? Are we going to war in the Middle East over Syria? I mean, are we never? Are, aren't we in the war? In war? Aren't we at war in the Middle East? I don't know. Are we going to go into Syria? My guess is that we're going to take some kind of action. What's telling to me is that Donald Trump was supposed to go to South America to represent the United States conference in Peru and then meet with the president of Colombia. He canceled that trip so that he can stay back and monitor uh, what's happening in Syria. I imagine that once... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus america figures out what their targets are going to be which is probably happening you know as we speak that they're going to take those targets and they're going to go and i would imagine it would be late at night again and that's what you're looking at like a year ago where it's a message sent yeah Exactly. I mean that that that's exactly right. And I think a year that ago there be... was a chemical attack right. also by Assad. They, now this let me just stop here. So we're saying that Assad, knowing that Trump had just announced that U.S. troops are leaving Syria, launched a chemical attack. Why rock the boat? I mean, you've got well I don't because get that. It, whether or not America is leaving, I guess in the eyes of Assad, and I'm not an expert in Syrian uh, geopolitics. But, but you I, do a lot of Middle East reporting. My network does. I, I don't do a ton of it myself. Okay. I do a lot on what what the United States posture is to it. So I don't. I'm not as uh, well versed as as others who I work with. But they're still in the middle of a civil war. No matter how you slice it, whether we're there or not, it's still a civil war, and they're going to do things that matter. Now it's not. You know, they don't have blinders on to what the U.S. is doing, but I do think that they they have to act independently in, in their minds. Uh, whether or not the U.S. is there, I think that's the truth. All right, moving on. Now, there was a warrant issued, which we'll come back to in a moment, mm -hmm. and the FBI did raid the office of Donald Trump's lawyer. Office, hotel room, residence, uh, wherever they could go. And that that's a warrant that had to have been seen by a prosecutor who's now recused himself from this, which is worse for, for the president, who was appointed by the president. It means that this rose Why, to the level. Stop right there. Why is that worse for the president? It's worse for the president because whoever will step in is not someone who is necessarily appointed by the president. And, uh, and I think that it, it creates a situation for Trump where 
people that are not handpicked are looking into what happened. There has to, and legal experts will say this, there has to be something that rose to the level of going into attorney-client privilege on the part of the federal government. And, and actually then it was not really a federal case. It was a state case, which also brings up another point, which is that if Robert Mueller is fired, the case against Michael Cohen and presumably the president goes on because it is not being conducted by his office. Secondly, if it's a federal case, President Trump can pardon Michael Cohen. He cannot, for a state case, pardon someone who is indicted for a state crime. So there, there, there are so many protections that the independent prosecutor has by having by handing this off to the state. But still, in order for all of these people to sign off on it, including Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, who had to sign off on it and did, it had to have risen to the to the point where they knew something was up. Either he was destroying evidence, this Michael Cohen, or they, that he was not going to obey a subpoena. And Rod Rosenstein is a Trump appointment. Yes. He's the deputy attorney general. Right. Anything else? Did I, t- I told you I went on a ride-along. Have we talked about that? No, we haven't. I went on a ride-along. I- I'm going to quickly mention this, um, and then we'll wrap up. I went on a ride-along in Compton with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Wow. Uh, what was the reason? I had never been on one. I'd been offered, because of my background in news, I'd been offered many times ride-alongs, and even I've had friends who've been police officers, and I just never, A, could make the time, B, you know, prioritized it, and for some reason, I always felt like that's something I want to do, especially now in the environment of such front-and-center police issues and, and law, law enforcement issues. I wanted some window on what they... That's so cool. So they offered it, and I said, I'd love to do it. And, I, and then they said, well, you can go, and they have all these places, you know, because the, the way L.A., I'm not going to get into a big thing, but essentially they, they, they patrol all these different places. I wanted Compton because I felt like Compton is a place where maybe stuff goes down, you know. Give me, give me the second choice, like when you were saying, should I do Compton or... Uh, the, well, I mean, there's West Hollywood, for example. Right. They um, patrol... They patrol a lot. What's the difference between the sheriff's office and the LAPD? Unincorporated areas of of L.A. contract with the sheriff to patrol and handle law enforcement. So they really perform the function of LAPD. I see. But they do it on a contracted basis. And even areas that are not unincorporated, some areas of, like I believe, one of the beach cities contracts with, with the sheriff's department. Sometimes their departments were mired in controversy, corruption, whatever, and they just had to clean house and go, okay, we're going to have the L.A. County Sheriff's So department. we're L.A., they're never in the same jurisdiction? No. Okay. Never. They're the fourth largest policing agency in the, in the country, which I didn't the realize. LA, the LA County Sheriff's Department. I wow. Mean, huge. So they cover an immense area. For example, Malibu is a place that you could go. Yeah. Uh, Hidden Hills. Um, you know, a lot of these areas that I'm going to mention may not mean anything if you don't live in Southern California, but uh, but essentially uh, you can go to... Some of the tonier parts of LA or some of the rougher parts. Right. And there, and there are other rough areas, you know, but it all, it all depends. Like anything could happen anywhere. Right. Uh, but I wanted Compton. I mean, I knew Compton. So I go to Compton. It's night. And I wanted to go on a night ride and like they you go also... straight into compton yeah you, you, you missed my uh oh straight into compton yeah <laughs> sorry mark all right oh god that's so no no it's bad don't blame me somewhere. for it don't blame me for it anyway so you go you go to compton i went straight into compton <laughs> oh see when i re-edit it you yeah. won't even hear you <laughs> 
So I went, <laughs> I went into Compton. I went at night. And look, it's not like you're going to battle. Come on. Chances are nothing's going to happen. Right, you're just but driving it, somewhere. Right, you're just driving yeah. somewhere. But you go in, and the Compton station is there. And the guy did ask me, how come you cho- cho- chose this uh, area? Yeah. And I said, I kind of explained to him why. And he said, okay, well, let's go. So we get into this uh, cruiser. It was like one of those interceptors, like a big, you know, kind of four-wheel drive type Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And he's got the windows down, which I guess I just sort of deductively realize you want the windows down all the time because you can hear what's happening. Oh, that's interesting. And he started cruising through the neighborhoods, and they were dark, and he took me to these various... This is what he would do on a normal night, just drive around. Right. And he uh, showed me these areas that uh, where drug dealers congregate, where where illegal weapons deals are typically made. There's certain areas and pockets of the community where that stuff goes on. He also showed me certain pockets of the community that are really nice. I mean, they're, they're nice areas of Compton yeah, also. Of course. Um, and his story was interesting. He came up through the L.A. Sheriff Department, worked in the jails, which is what I guess they all have to do, And then he, because the sheriffs run the jails. And he said it actually prepared him well for coming to Compton and just patrolling the streets and interacting with different kinds of people. Did he choose Compton? Yes, and here's the reason. He grew up in Compton, and he said, I always wanted to come back here to this community to make a difference. He was a very sympathetic character. and right. like he'd be Sounds a, thoughtful. Yeah, exactly. What a reflective guy. And then this happened, and this is how, how much he doesn't want to arrest someone. Right. Okay? Very quickly, though, does he have a partner? Does he work with someone else, or does he work solo? He's a training officer, so he typically works with a partner that's training A trainee to be, or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like the trainee that night. Right. So a couple of things happened. We went into a dark apartment complex, and we went in. There was this whistle. It was like, but, but loud. And he said, did you hear that whistle? I said, yeah. He said, that was somebody signaling that the police just went, just rolled into the area. Oh, wow. So he, then he pulls up, turns his lights off as he drives through, and he pulls up, and there's a group of guys. They're like smoking, whatever, maybe smoking whatever. I'm going to say this is like six minutes into the thing. I'm like, wow, right. this is really, dude, do we have to like go training day right away? Right. And he, I stayed well, in. Your level of fear. I was uh, really I was one really, to ten. I mean, probably seven point five. Okay, because I have, we don't no fractions. I've seen every movie. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say seven. No decimals. Okay, seven. Uh, I've seen every movie, and I've also read every headline, and mm. I'm just thinking, oh my god, this is you know. Right. And I have no vest. I have nothing. Right. And he stops, leaves me in the car. He goes out, and I can hear him though because the car's right there, and. Then the guys pull up their shirts to show that they don't have any guns. That's what they're really looking for, illegal weapons. And the guys knew to pull up their shirts right away. Yeah. So it's like what they In know In fact, he said heater check. And I asked him what he said. Yeah, heater means guns. It's yeah. kind of the heat, street. Like yeah. packing heat. Yeah, right. I didn't realize it. So then we move on. Then he starts pulling a few people over, you know. And what they do is they take them out of the car and they wait in the Squad car. They wait in the in the cruiser. So they're in the cruiser with you. Yes, and I didn't say one word to anybody. I just felt. Were you like, told not to? No, I just felt, and I think he probably would have been okay if I did. Yeah, but I just felt like this isn't my place to start chatting up these people who potentially are going to be involved in a back and forth with the right. sheriff. With right. the, was there a profile to who was being pulled over? Was everybody exactly the same? And there was no profile. And first one was like a young Latino kid. I'm going to say he was maybe 17. Right. The second was a... Elderly Jewish woman. 
Second was a Latino guy and a black dude who were making some deal in an alley. Mm-hmm. All of these people, he let go. Okay. Oh, yeah. he, he was kind of like that exchange you want with a police officer. That's nice. Did some of the people on the street know this officer? He said that the guys who gathered the uh, gang that he first stopped for the heater check, he said that they know me. Okay. They all, they, they've seen me. But the last thing convinced me, he really is not here to hassle people, at least this guy. Right. And this is what happened. He pulled over a woman in a, like a suburban, blacked out windows, mm-hmm. pulled her over like a AM, PM kind of mini march right. setup. So it's very brightly lit. And he had her wait in the cruiser, had me come out with him. And he said, look on the seat. And there's a gun and there's a rock of crystal meth. Jesus. And you can tell it's meth because it looks like every meth rock you've ever seen in every TV show. Okay. Or movie. He ran her stuff. And she had $170,000 worth of warrants. Whoa. Then he's back out talking to me, and he said, I'm going to let her go. I said, what? I thought you were looking for illegal weapons. He said, that's not a real gun. And he said, and that meth? He said, that's a misdemeanor. He said, I'm not going to ring her up on a misdemeanor. It's just not worth it. I said, what about the warrants? He said, the warrants, you have to look at what she was warranted for. It's all driving without a license. He said, it's just not worth it. It's not, he said, if it was a violent crime... Or if it was something that involved something apart from some moving violation, it would be worth it. But and and I said, why is it so high? Why why the amount? He said they they come up with the amounts arbitrarily. Thirty thousand is the first one, and then it doubles. And he said, so you can't pay attention to that. It was fascinating. He wasn't looking to bring her in. He was just looking to keep the streets safe. And since the gun was fake, he let her go. Interesting. Yeah. Look. And you saw her and you thought, it's sad. She's, she, and she tells a story of she has five kids with four different dads. And it's, it's just awful. Yeah. So it's like nothing. Just terrible. Nothing good comes from bringing her in. Right. Anyway, that was my ride along. Uh, wow. That's fascinating. It was cool. I mean, it was. Did uh, you see one arrest? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Or there were no arrests. None. And there were he, he pulled over... A, um, I'm going to say pulled over maybe five people or investigated certain yeah. five different situations. He also had a remarkable command of the landscape visually. Right. He at one point said, do you see a body down there, down that alley? I said, no, I don't. He said, look, like halfway down the alley, you don't see. And then he pulled the car and put it in reverse. And I looked again and I didn't see it. He said, yeah, I think there's any. So he pulls down the alley and sure enough, like he's told me it's there. Wow. Asked me twice and I couldn't see it. And it was a guy. And it's not illegal for the guy to be hanging out like that. And again, he didn't ring him up. He just talked to him, asked, you know, if he lives here. And the guy right. said, no, 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 I'm visiting a friend. He was quite, I thought he was quite relaxed or tolerant, yeah. whatever you want to call it. I mean, I, I don't know. I thought Restrained might be the way to yeah, yeah. I thought he was Amazing. restrained. Anyway, that's uh, my big ride along. Um, that's cool. 
Yeah. So what can we look for, Michael Shore? Uh, go to i24news.tv. I was at the Martin Luther King 50th celebration, uh, commemoration, I wouldn't say it was a celebration, uh, of his assassination in Memphis. And I did uh, a couple stories that I was really happy with, i24news.tv. You should see him there. There was something else we plugged uh, last time. It was a conversation you had. Ken Starr, maybe? Yeah. We yeah, plugged Ken your Ken Starr. Starr thing, which is still up there also. Okay, uh, good, uh, good. Yeah. Michael, thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to see everybody here, all of you. It's been uh, it's been too long. Michael Shore, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Michael. Our next guest is a homicide detective. He's been a homicide detective for a long time, but he was touched by murder personally. We'll get into that. His track record on solving or assisting in more than 250 homicide cases is amazing. He solved each of the 60-plus cases that he was the lead detective on. Murder and me, we go way back. Murder took my mother. Years later, it came from my brother. That's when I found my mission in life. Every case I worked, I solved. Every case I solved, I got a confession. I didn't choose murder. Murder chose me. All new season premieres Wednesday at 10, only on Investigation Discovery. Joining us from Shreveport, Louisiana, is Detective Rod Demery. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, the show is gritty and interesting, and at the beginning of every show, it's reviewed that murder touched you in a firsthand way. Your mother was murdered when you were just three. How did that happen? Why did it happen? Well, you know, my mother got married after um, I was about a year old and my brother was two. And the guy she married moved her from Louisiana to Texas, so my brother and I stayed in Louisiana. I think the plan was for her to come back after they got settled. She was in a situation that was just a typical domestic violence type household that escalated. You know, he started with a just just random violence and it ended with him shooting her nine times as she tried to leave him. So, uh, you know, my brother and I were shipped off to New Mexico to be raised by my grandparents, my mom's mom and uh, father. And, uh, you know, I guess the memory of my mother's murder is obviously not something I don't have a, a, a real vivid memory about, but uh, I think it was probably more so watching my grandparents, you know, my, my grandmother's grief and my grandfather's worry that kind of you know gave me a new perspective or a different perspective on how crime victims are, are actually affected. Can I ask you a question about a child's memory? Because generally at three, you remember nothing. But something as traumatic as this, you might have some kind of flash of some sort, a memory, a sensation. Do you have that? I do not. The only memory I have or the vivid, I guess, picture in my mind is my brother told me a lot about the funeral. And um, he told me that my aunt was holding me and he was standing next to my aunt. And it's like, I can almost see that. And, you know, so, you know, the mind's kind of malleable. So I don't know if that's a, an actual memory or just, just what I remember my brother telling me since we were kids, but I don't have any memory at all. That makes sense, you know. Then, and I really am, I promise I'll get to the police work. I just think your background is so fascinating. Honestly, that's what makes this show so much better, is that you're this guy who was touched by murder firsthand, and now you're you're looking into all of these homicide cases, and your track record is remarkable, I mean, on solving these crimes. And the way you solve them, we'll get into in just a second. But before I leave your personal history, your brother murdered someone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had just gotten back from a military deployment. Um, I was overseas, and when I got back, uh, my brother uh, showed up at my house and told me he just killed someone. Well, I took him to the police. They um, put him wait, 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 wait! Your brother showed up at the house and said, "I just killed someone." How did yeah, that go yeah, go down? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, that was kind of strange. You know, uh, like I said, I just got back. I, I were actually just got back from Japan. And uh, my brother was living in Southern California at the time. And when I got back, it was maybe a day after I got back. Um, my brother showed up at my doorstep and told me that he had gotten involved in some sort of fight dispute or, or something and ended up killing someone. And um, I, you know, obviously I was shocked. Now, what, stop again. Was he huffing and puffing going, hey, oh, hey, yeah. Rod, you'll never believe what happened type thing? Yeah, yeah. And, and actually covered in blood. Uh, his clothing was um, saturated in blood. So, you know, naturally I was shocked and I asked him, you know, are, are you sure? You know, yeah. he told me, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. And I simply took him to the police station. They took him into custody. I didn't stick around for the trial, but I know he got sentenced to 25 uh, to life in prison. He's still in prison. And that was about 24 years ago. Jeez, it's just unreal. Your mother, a victim of domestic violence that ends up taking her life, and then your brother involved in some kind of dispute where it ends up that he takes someone's life. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, I think, um, you know, I I always say God has a plan for you. And, you know, that was mine. You know, I I don't look at my mother's uh, death. That's something that I was uh, misfortunate to have, and even though it was a misfortune, and I don't look at my brother's crimes as, as the same. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things where you you kind of ask, you know, how did you survive or why did you survive? And I think you know to do my job actually. You know, my mother's um, uh, murder and the fact that I could relate so so closely to you know I could see my grandmother when I see some lady that's uh, grieving her daughter and not knowing what to do. You know, and I can interview a murder suspect and I can see that person as a person rather than just the murderer they are because my brother was actually a person prior to that. So I think that unique set of circumstances gave me a, a different perspective on working cases, particularly murder. I mean, I work police work all my life, uh, narcotics, armed robbery, sex crimes, but um, I was very comfortable, strangely comfortable when I, worked, when I went to homicide. Wow. First of all, the the healthy outlook you have as a result of these experiences is remarkable. It's probably the best way to reconstitute this kind of thing as something that can be productive. And then that almost eerie sense that you have that you're more comfortable in this environment investigating murders than you were in all these other places. Well, it's just that. It's a little uh, eerie, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it really is. It's a different sensation, you know, uh, going to a house and, you know, informing a woman that her daughter or son or, you know, husband and wife had been murdered. And, you know, that, that face and that, and that anguish on that face, you know, it's very familiar to me. And, and I guess my, my, you know, relentless work was because I just couldn't go back and tell them I didn't solve the case. So, you know, you know in the military, we always said that, you know, or even in police work, you know, this officer made the ultimate sacrifice. And I look at that, you know, it's like my mother's death was the ultimate sacrifice because so many people benefited from um, being able to get closure on their own murders. And, you know, I, I guess that's where I find peace because, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. So right, yeah, I believe right. God, has a, God has a plan for everything. And, uh, because you know, I'm not as religious as you are, clearly, can yeah. I just ask a question that's full of vengeance? Uh, yeah. They got the guy who killed your mother, and he, I presume, was sent away forever, right? No. Um, the guy who killed my mother was arrested. Um, he was charged with a lesser crime. Nowadays, would be equivalent to a, a manslaughter. He didn't do any jail time. And you know, as I researched it, because I actually investigated it, I found out that it was a you know it was a time. You know, women didn't have a whole lot of rights back then, and certainly it was a time of segregation. So you know, black women didn't either. So yeah, it was one of those things that was just kind of pushed to the side. He never did a day in jail. I did find him after I became an adult, be in police work, and I interviewed him, and I actually videotaped a conversation with him and. 
I wanted him to tell me what happened. And he told me that he killed my mother, but it was an accident. Of course it wasn't, but um, I think uh, I don't know that he could ever face, uh, you know, me and tell me that, you know, I, I killed your mother just uh, because I was an abusive man or a controlling man. But, um, yeah, I had to find those answers. Wow, that that feels like there's a movie in there, doesn't there? I mean, you know, the murder cop who finds the guy who murdered his own mother, and then you're so full of a sense of understanding that you actually gave the guy the chance to confess and say, hey, I was a different guy then. It was awful what I did. No apology. Well, you know, all those things that he could have said to in some way at least acknowledge the horror that he perpetrated, but he didn't do any of those things. No, no, no. He um, he actually tried to, you know, minimize is what we call it in police police. But, you know, the strange thing uh, was that I had an easier time forgiving him for what he did than my brother. You know, I kind of felt like my brother owed me something and my brother knew better. And so it was a little more difficult with my brother. I think it was 15 years before I was able to forgive my brother. Um, but that guy, it was it was almost instant, you know, because I, I you know, I don't know. I, I just um, realized what had happened, how much time had passed. It was just a broken down old man. You know, my brother, on the other hand, it was just he and I. You know, after our mother was killed, you know, he knew what we went through. And, you know, I thought about the, the victims that were surviving the man that he killed. And I thought about the fact that, you know, there I am having to face the world with, you know, my only living sibling, you know, going to prison for, for some, something that horrible. It was, it was a tough time. Is that one of the so, reasons that you have not been in touch with him? Well, I have been as of recent. Um, it took me a while to get there, maybe 15 years. And, you know, I, I think that um, once you get to a certain point in life, you start confronting all those things of the past, you know, and you reconcile a lot of stuff. Like I realized that it was a lot of shame in it. You know, you're, you're kind of ashamed of what happened. You're kind of angry about what happened. And then, you know, you just come to a conclusion that, you know, it is what it is and that it's not necessarily the crime um, that defines the criminal. You know, uh, people do horrible things, but, you know, it's something that they can be punished for. But the person they're actually or who they actually are is different from the act that they committed. So there's a lot of mind balance in there. And, it, and trust me, it takes uh, a while to try to reconcile some of it. And I still have trouble with it. No, you sound honestly like a very mature mind looking back at all this. I don't know that I could have that level of maturity and enlightenment. I would be remiss if I didn't say one last thing about your mother. It would be hard for me to ever forgive a system that would allow the guy never to do a day in jail. Yeah, you know, and 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 that's probably another thing that lends to my my work as as a police officer. I realize that the system is full of people, and people are going to fail, and that's the toughest part because you work with police officers and you know prosecutors or even you know uh, defense attorneys that, that that just don't seem to have that uh, personal connection, and you know it's it's going to fail, you know, and and I think um, there's but there's always going to be people who don't and people who are relentless in it. So yeah, any, any system is flawed. And yeah, when I see, when I, when I reflect back on that, I, I think of some of the, the, the modern day failures and realize that, you know, we just have to try to perfect it, but I don't think it'll ever be perfect. So it's, um, yeah, it's uh, a lot to deal with there. You know, if everybody does what they can, then it gets better. That's exactly right. And that's really why I'm encouraged by talking to you. I feel like, well, you know, that's one of the good guys who's trying to make the system a little bit better. And if everybody was like that, then the system would be a lot better. So I want to go to your show now, Murder Chose Me. You have all of these cases that seem like dead ends. There's everything from this high-profile person in the Korean community. She's a, got a store and that kind of thing. She's murdered in broad daylight, right, right. on the doorstep of her store. And right. there is no physical evidence that anybody can find. And you begin 
talking to people. And this is one thing I wanted to, I want to ask you about this case in case of generally, but I want to ask you about one thing because it seems that all the cops who talk to us say this guy has some connection to the community or some way of speaking with people. Uh, Detective Rod Demery somehow gets people to say things that we couldn't get them to say and, and reveal things that we couldn't get them to reveal. Yeah, you know, and, I, and a lot of the guys that I work with, we, we always have those conversations. And, you know, the first thing is that any detective is going to be successful when he has a bunch of people working around that are really good at what they do, you know, patrol officers or whoever. And in the, the neighborhoods and in the community, you know, people kind of feel your sincerity. And if if they think that you're really sincere about something, you start to build up a reputation, people are going to tell you things that they would normally say. But I think the most important part is, is that, you know, murder is a, a very intimate and personal crime. And it can't be worked as a detached investigator. You know, I, you know there are advancements in, in technology, you know, DNA, uh, you know, whatever. You know, but the reality is, is that murder is very personal. And it takes a person to work the crime, and it takes a survivor on a personal level. Now, the trick is, is that the, the person who commits the crime, there's nothing personal about that. It's an act that they did. And when you bring someone in, especially in an interrogation, they're going to tell you exactly what you need to know because, one, it's overwhelming. They, they, they cannot say it. They, they have to tell somebody, but you have to be the person they want to tell it to. You have to understand that they're reading you just as you do. You know, we study nonverbal communication and, and, and all these other different body languages where they do the same thing. They come in and they sit down in that chair and they know that you either just want to lock them up or put them in jail or whatever, and, and they get on the defense. But if they think that you're just going to listen to their story, they'll do it. And some try to manipulate you. But the trick is, is once they start talking, they can't. They can't stop. And I, I think it's psychologically overwhelming to carry around that type of a uh, uh, psychological baggage, especially immediately after killing someone and not and not crack. I think it, it's always going to happen. We see that you have some connections on the street in the community. How important are those connections? Well, that makes it. I mean, I think that the police officer or police department, you know, and it's they're very unlikely. If I'm working in a predominantly black neighborhood, doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be successful just because I'm black. And if there's a white officer working in a predominantly black neighborhood, doesn't mean he's going to be. Un- it doesn't matter. You know, people understand a human connection. And if they feel your sincerity, and that's what it usually is. I mean, everything about police work is trust. The community actually has to trust you. Now, that's made a couple of ways. It, it's word of mouth. It's what they see you doing. They watch the arrest. They watch how people are treated fairly or unfairly. Once you develop that, you know, you're there. I mean, there are a lot of neighborhoods that shut out and don't want to talk to the police unless because they don't have faith in the police. But if they believe that you're actually going to help them, they're going to do it. No one wants to be shot. No one wants the neighborhood to be shot up. But they would rather not say anything than take the chance of somebody being arrested based on something they said and that person being released. So it's it's all about developing a reputation and, uh, you know, keeping your word, you know. Right. And, and, and protecting so protecting your sources, you mean. And protecting your sources. I mean, there, there are sources that would tell me things I would never, you know, tell anybody. But there are other little things. You know, uh, I'll give you a quick example. I had a female. Her boyfriend was shot, shot in the head. And she comes to the police station and she's wondering if he may be HIV infected. I took her to the Philadelphia house and put her in counseling. So it's it's those kind of things where people see your, your sincerity. It doesn't have anything to do with police work. It's just you as a human. And that kind of travels. People start to say, you know what? I mean, I've gotten letters from people that I put in prison. They say, you know, you got me, but you got me right. <laughs> you know, and something's wow. you know, going on in their neighborhood and they'll say, but this guy's out doing whatever. So it, it, it just kind of works that way. It's, it's not a 
you know, I don't think it's a friendly thing. I don't think it's even a sort of a kinship. I think people just kind of realize what you're there for, and they're going to do what they can to, to make you successful because it makes them safe. Everybody wants to be safe. That's a basic need. It's interesting, though. I've talked to a lot of guys who work in some nasty areas, and you hear about how the community is reluctant to, to step forward. You know, the people are reluctant to tell police and yeah. other law enforcement authorities what happened or give them any information. Right. And that's not necessarily an individual police officer failure. That's a system failure. And when the system, whether real or imagined, becomes this this antagonistic entity or, or somebody that they're just not comfortable with, then they're going to shut it off. You know, the reality is, is that the people actually make the police. It, it, it's always been that way. <laughs> you know, that's the way our country set up. We, we select these people to police us and we select them to enforce the crimes that we want enforced. And if you know, we kind of flip that on his ear and decide we're going to tell them what we want them to do. Then it gets a little, little, little tricky. But for the most part, people respect police officers individually. They don't necessarily respect systems. Yeah, I can well understand that. So the trick might be then, as you say, to connect with the people personally. Oh, yeah. So this next episode, as I mentioned, involves this uh, Korean entrepreneur, this lady who's a shop owner. And then you really do have to kind of work the streets to make something happen and to, to sort of shed some light onto the situation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just talking to people. And every little piece leads to another piece. And then you just kind of have to put that together in your mind. You know, that's just, just gumshoe police work. You know, one thing adds up to another and then another. And then before you know it, you got a clearer picture of what's going on. And in this particular case, you know, it was nothing more than me walking up to a group of guys and saying that I knew that this guy was your friend. Yeah, you do a, you do a real, you do a real number on these kids. Yeah, you really, and I don't want to spoil it. People will be able to see it. Um, But uh, you do a real number and usually, and you never know, but oftentimes I should say police do know things before they ask you. And that's how they figure out whether you're BSing them or not. Oh, yeah. The one thing I've learned about police work is when people are in a position of self-preservation, they're going to preserve themselves. And if they really think that it's in their best interest to tell you something, they will. It could be something as simple as a misdemeanor seatbelt ticket. You know, people just won't do it for somebody else. As much as people believe that urban myth that people don't sense, that's just not true. They don't until it involves their own peril. <laughs> and then they'll tell on their mother, trust me. If they have enough at stake, you're saying, then... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. people just don't throw themselves away. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it just doesn't make logical sense. I'm going to ask you yeah. a question, and then I'm going to let you go, but I'm really curious about this as a guy who's done so many interrogations. You've talked to so many people on the way to solving a murder. You've talked to so many murderers on the way to a confession. You do solicit confessions from many people, many more probably than the, the average. So this question seems well-suited for you to at least have an opinion on. You know, there's a lot of back and forth about torture and whether or not it works. Assuming that there is information of some kind that you want to get from someone, a terrorist, a murderer, whomever, does torture work? No, no, it's, it's unreliable. Yeah, there's a difference between somebody complying and somebody cooperating. Compliance is they want you to stop whatever it is you're doing. So the, the information is going to be unreliable. Somebody uh, cooperating, they're telling you actual fact. I don't know that torture can do anything except, you know, motivate somebody to get you to stop whatever it is you're doing. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be accurate. So, no, I don't think so. I think the the true way to get information is to find out what that person likes, what that person needs, and what they value, and put them in a position where it's going to be taken away, and you're going to get your answer. Yeah, it could be something that's as simple as, as, you know, you're going to go to jail, and somebody's going to be with a girlfriend, you know, 
or something is, you know, what you just bought that new car. I mean, it's very small things that people are motivated by. It's not the huge thing. And, you know, torture, I don't know that that works for anything other than to get somebody to stop you from torturing them. You want reliable information. You don't want just information to get you to stop. Everything I've read on it and from guys who are involved, uh, even in the uh, in some of the Guantanamo situations and everything, I've, I've read some pretty substantially long pieces about just this subject, and they all say what you say, which is yeah. uh, bonding with the guy you're talking with. These are usually prisoners, so it's a different situation. Like when you detain someone, you don't have the power to like know that you're going to see them the next day and the next day and the next day. But uh, with uh, guys in Guantanamo or in other situations where they're going to be there for longer periods of time, they uh, I'd read that they, they bond with them. They give them cigarettes. Yeah. They give them whatever yeah. they're, you know what I mean? A Bible, whatever they're, or, you know, a oh, Koran. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. People are, people are uh, always going to cooperate with people that they think have their best interests or at least have a common ground. You know, when you start getting into a, you know, you're going to force something or force something out of somebody, it doesn't usually work. And when it does, it's unreliable because you, you're not talking to somebody that you're actually getting truthful information from. You're talking to somebody that either wants you to stop doing what you're doing or just get away from you. And you want reliable information, especially when it, you know, with their lives at stake or, or people being arrested at stake. You know, homicide is, is, is one of those things that you want true information. You don't want something just because somebody told you it happened because people will lie. Some people will make up confessions just to stop the interrogation. So you, you, you don't want to do that. It's, it's bonding. It's a human connection. And it's almost impossible, you know, to not have a human connection when someone's doing a kind gesture or at least a, a non-antact gesture. So it's, it's, it's not as complicated as people think. Non-judgmental type stuff usually works. The show is Murder Chosen me it's second season on investigation discovery featuring the case files of the leading homicide detective who we've been speaking with rod demery and it's it's a hit show wednesday nights at 10 don't let it go to your head detective (laughs) no not quite i've been a policeman too long for that (laughs) yeah let's uh let's stay humble that's all i'm saying yeah yeah we kind of realized how worthless we are (laughs) in the grand scheme of things (laughs) it was a pleasure talking to you and thanks for taking a minute hey thank you thanks for having me so long bye-bye That's Rod Demery from Shreveport, Louisiana. The show's called Murder Chose Me. The second season on Investigation Discovery, Wednesdays at 10. This is The Edge. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can always reach us through the website, edge-show.com. There's a place to comment there. And if you have anything to say, you can also say it through Twitter. I'm at Mark T. Live. Thanks again for spending some time with us. Until next time, bye-bye. I want to thank you for all the ways that you support my friends on The Edge. And if you haven't already, why don't you show your support and subscribe. Go to Edge Show. Oh, shit, it's Edge Dash. What the, what's with the dash, stupid? All right, let me. I want to thank you for all the ways that you support my friends. Show your support and leave something on their website, edge-show.com. Stupid. Why is there a dash? Edge-show.com. Edge-show.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.